Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. We've hit the halfway mark of the MIA baseball season and only two teams in Division II remain undefeated. One of those teams, Lemonster, is looking to win its first championship since 2014, Rich Barnaby's first year as head coach of his alma mater. Coach Barnaby is our guest today on the Base Path Podcast. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You guys are putting a lot of pressure on me right away. Lofty state championship goals. I like it. Yeah, there you go. We're talking about old championships. So the this was the first week where those MIA seedings came out. They that they release them now kind of like mid-season. And it just shows you basically how the bracket would break down if the tournament were to start today. So it's you and Milton, one, two. How furious are you that they got the one and you're the two? It gives us something to work for at practice. And Milton deserves it. They knocked us out of the playoffs last year. And they were excellent. Well coached, super talented. We think we faced the kid who's, who's now dominating at Northeastern right now. So top to bottom, just a great baseball program. So uh, it, it, I think you really just want to be kind of in the top four. That way we don't have to make the two-hour drive to someone later in the, in the season. But it'll, it always gives you something to strive for being at number two. Well, I guess one and two, yeah, it doesn't really matter because you wouldn't face off until it's a neutral site anyway. So as long, I mean, if you're in that top two, you're in good shape. What what has gone right for you guys so far this season, undefeated through the first half? What are the things that are really going well for you? I think pitching, pitching has been a strong part for us, led by Angel Baez, who's a junior. He's kind of been our ace of the staff so far. He got Central Catholic. He got Wachusett, who's an excellent, excellent team. He faced up against Methuen, who I would expect Methuen to win a lot of games later. I think they, they stacked their schedule early in the season with some tough teams. Uh, but a very talented Methuen team. And he's just tough. He's not going to give you many chances to score, especially if we can play good defense behind him. So it's, it's definitely been led by pitching. We we go deep, too. Like we have a solid bullpen. Ryan Gardner has three saves on the year, which, you know, when you can take your pitchers out after about 70, 80 pitches and, and know that you're pitching staffs, not going to lose anything. It might even get better. I think that really helps your high school staff, especially long run. When we're hopefully if we're still playing in June and you get later in that season, if you have a pitching staff that maybe doesn't have as many innings logged on them, they'll be ready to throw some smoke come those playoff games. And then we have, of course, Tyler Godin, who's going to Anna Maria, who's coming off an injury last fall. So we're kind of resting him yesterday, resting him earlier in the season. But now he's he almost had a full workload at this point. So he beat Oakmont, who is a team that's been in and out of your top 10 a few times, led by Caleb Allen, who pitched against us that day. And he beat Shrewsbury last week, who's a team that's in your top 10. We're actually letting him hit now. So he was two for two in his last game with a double. So getting him healthy just makes our pitching staff even better. And young kids like Reese Laura, who's a sophomore, he's only got one start this year because the other guys have been so great. But he's a sophomore throwing left 80s from the low 80s from the left side. It's just a lot. So when you can make it really hard for teams to score against, you can win a lot of baseball games. Yeah. And this is getting into like an interesting time of year, kind of a stressful time of year for high school baseball coaches because we're coming off a week of rain. And I remember I used to cover, I was a sports editor up in Newburyport for a while. So we covered Bill Pettengill, who was a legendary coach up in Newburyport. And I used to hate covering games like over these next two weeks when teams were cramming in like four games a week because once in a while he just put like a freshman or sophomore on the mound and be like this is the scheduled loss we're playing our fourth game in five days and I'd go to interview him after the game and he'd be like oh go talk to the athletic director about playing four games in five days this was we shouldn't even be out here today and it was just miserable covering it but 
it sounds like you're pretty well suited for a run like that because you have so much depth this year. Right. We, we started off the season with four games in one week. We, had, we started with Central Catholic, who's on, on fire. We, then we went to Oakmont and we faced Caleb Allen. Then we went to Wachusett. I can tell you he was won seven in a row. Mm-hmm. As deep of a lineup as anyone in the state. And then Shepherd Hill, who was one four of that last five games. So we had four really good teams in that first week of the season. And if it wasn't for that pitching depth, I don't think we would have survived that. So we are kind of built for it. We do play more games in May than we do in April. I don't know how much you, time you spent in Lemonster, but it's a little bit of a winter fell out here. It's I think we get on our field like two days before we play the Central Catholic. So we can't really schedule games too early in Lemonster. And in the end, if I'm going to push a guy in four days rest, and maybe get his pitch count up a little bit, I'd rather be in May when the weather's warm and you, those arms are stretched out than than back in April. So, yeah, we are built for it. And we, we kind of intentionally load our schedule up a little bit more in May anyways, because this weather's not great to throw in. It's, it can cause injuries. Everything's always wet. Guys are slipping. So we have a good amount of games left on our schedule against good teams. But like you said, I think our pitching staff is built for that. And if we have to throw a freshman or a sophomore out there, that's a good, that's good for our program. That means I have confidence in a guy. That can do that. When Angel Baez was a freshman, we, we kind of ran into a situation where he had a pitch against Shrewsbury for the league title, and he beat him as a freshman. So sometimes you also find those those diner in the rough. So it's it's a scheduled loss maybe, but sometimes you can win those games too. Is Angel committed anywhere yet, or is he is he still looking Nothing for Nothing yet. Nothing yet. He's a winner. He's, he's an absolute winner. So he, he he's mid, he mid to high 80s. He's got plus breaking stuff. I think maybe one thing that coaches might not like about him is he's only like 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, so, but he's an absolute bulldog on the mound. And he, whoever takes him, is he's going to be a competitor. He's going he's gonna to beat a lot of those teams that maybe haven't recruited him for sure. Hey, Billy Wagner just went in the Hall of Fame, and he's a, he's like 5'9", left-hander. But I, actually, you mentioned the last time I was out in Lemonster was the state championship game against the Varian. I think it was 2021, and I was like – early July, because that was like the first year after the pandemic when they had all the different sports seasons for the MIA. And it, the season was like made early July for the teams that made it that far. But it just makes me think of how strong the program is in Lemonster year after year, even going back to your predecessor who ended up winning three state championships there. How is it that the that baseball is so strong in that community? I could t- we don't win because of the coaching in Lemonster. I can tell you that much. <laughs> It's a baseball town. And that did start with Emil Johnson, who has 730-ish wins, which yeah. is in D1 history. And with that comes a lot of dads that play Little League and a lot of pride in the Little League. And Rob Lore, who runs our Little League program now, it's the field is immaculate. These kids are playing doubleheaders. They're playing night games on Friday. It's just it's just a constant baseball machine down there. And then we have a great middle school program, that, which is undefeated right now. And a lot of those kids, my son's in eighth grade. He plays Babe Ruth. And he plays middle school, and he plays Nor'easters. And there's about seven or eight Lemister guys that are doing that with him in that eighth grade. And then you get to our Legion program, which was also in the state finals last year, which lost a tough one to Franklin. So there's a lot of good baseball being played at a number of different levels through Little League to travel to Babe Ruth to, to Legion to high school. A lot of these kids, even the middle school kids, are getting 70, 80 games a year which is kind of just creates that culture of, of good baseball. And you know how it is. Once you, once you win a couple of titles too, kids at the younger levels kind of see that and want to be a part and strive for that. And we've also had successful alumni like Pat Gallagher, who got drafted by the Blue Jays last June. 
Neil O'Connor, who was our state championship MVP in 2014. He goes on to UNH and becomes their second leading wide receiver. So there's just a lot of talent and a lot of success coming out, which which helps kids get interested in baseball. And once they're interested in baseball, it's strong from the time you're on T-ball to the time you're a freshman in college still playing for your Legion program. And I guess they're less likely to go private, to go to private schools or prep schools if you if they know that program is going to be there every year. Um, did you find, did you lose more guys during the pandemic to private schools and prep schools? We lost a decent amount. We had budget cuts. So I think it was more budget cuts than it was pandemic. So Jonathan Santusi, who's been lighting up for Duke University, yeah. he's a Lemister kid. He went to Phillips Andover, and I can't blame him. Like, if my son got offered that deal to go to Phillips Andover, he would have gone too. But I think when he he left, we lost, like, Dylan Vigu, who's at Groton, who's going right. to match, who's getting a lot of D1 looks. Andrew Shabari, who's at the University of Maine. I'm trying to get one more name. Well, anyways, there's another, there's a couple more guys who are at the D1 level. We have two guys starting for St. John's of Shrewsbury right now, too. So I guess it does speak to our depth. We we still do lose some of these guys to the prep school level and even the uh, the Catholic the Catholic league, but we're still able to win. I guess if I was still going to get those guys, if I get all the guys from Lemonster the last couple of years, we probably I don't even think we would have lost the game in all honesty with all those D ones arms. Oh, Colorado, Colorado is pitching at BC too. So there's a lot of good talent coming out of Lemonster. And I think when we, we'd have budget cuts back in like 2018-ish, a lot of guys went prep school. I think a lot of guys followed Jonathan too. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you're, when your best player goes to prep school, a lot of players kind of follow that. But we, we kept enough guys like Evan McCarthy who led us to the state championship that year. So we were, we were in the state championship in 1901 without any of those guys. So that still speaks to the kind of depth that Lemonster baseball produces. Yeah, that's incredible. Sorry to interrupt, Dan. Yeah. Can we, Coach, do you mind just mentioning Cola Russo's first names and then I can put it in with that list of players? Yeah. I, I think it's Andrew uh, Cola Russo. AJ. AJ. AJ, that's what it is. He's a great family, great guy. His, his dad took out my daughter's uh, wisdom teeth. But uh, yeah, so we lost him to the Grodd School as well, which ironically, my brother is the head coach of the Grodd School now. Oh, is that right? Kevin Barnaby. Oh, wow. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. He was with the Nor'easters too, isn't he? Yep, that's his main his, his main job is Nor'easters, but he gets a stipend through Grot. He's their head baseball coach. Okay. So I wanted to go back. You were talking about Coach Johnson. You took over for him. You actually won a state championship with him. He won three in 1986, 88, and 96. Like you said, at 725, 730, 730 wins, just crazy. Uh, and at 42 out of his 43 seasons, Lemonster went to the postseason, which is just amazing. What was it like when you took over for him? Because you want to put your own stamp on the program. You want to kind of create your own culture. What did you do that first season to say, all right, now it's my program? I mean, it was definitely a rough start. I think anytime you're going to replace a legend, there's just a lot of pressure. It's not, it's not like I took over a losing program. I was taking over Emil Johnson, who was maybe even at that time, the winningest coach in Massachusetts baseball in any division. He might've got passed like a year or two after that. So it did come with a lot of pressure, especially when you try to change the culture and make the program a little bit more yours. I think we started off like two and two, or in, and we went on to like four and three before we rattled off 15 out of 16 and won a state title. So there was definitely that that growth period where Lemister baseball always means successful, but when you try to rattle things a little bit and change the culture and change the way people play a little bit. There was definitely that pushback at the beginning. 
So it definitely wasn't easy. I don't recommend taking over for a legend. It's definitely a lot of pressure on that. The, the only good news is I was his assistant before that. I think there was at least that that trust before that that I knew a lot of the guys and I coached him in basketball too. Was the JV basketball coach, so there there was some of that. But when you're trying to change everything and you, you got a pretty good team and you start out two and two and then you know you have a losing record after the first couple of weeks, it definitely put the pressure on. But I think the fact that we struggled together and got through that kind of created that trust with, between us and the players that led to that state championship that year. Once we, once we got the train rolling a little bit. Yeah, I was reading about that state championship season and it seemed like, like you said, a little bit of a slow start and then just came on like just rattling off wins in the entire three quarters of the season, I guess. And it's everybody kind of noted that you were playing small ball that year. Is that a style that you've continued to play or was that kind of personnel related? I think it's personnel related. I think small ball is, is especially valuable in April because it's cold. Like you said, it's wet. The bats aren't necessarily as hot in April. Then you get to May when no one has any pitching left because they got five games in a week. Then I think you can swing the bats a little bit more. But then you almost need to go small ball a little bit more in June uh, because you're facing 90 miles an hour. Like you, you have all your dudes left. So that's once you get into the playoffs late in the season, you got to be able to kind of change gears and have multiple ways to score. So I think in 2014, we got in a situation where we, st- we kept stranding runners on third base with less than two outs. And so it got to the point where the guys were almost getting stressed about it. So we just kind of moved into like a squeeze game and a hit and run game and just kind of getting the ball and play no matter what, instead of living maybe for that three run homer. And then once we had some success with that, the kids just kind of ran with it to the point where we squeezed three times in the state finals, the state semifinals. I think we had three hit and runs. It, it just kind of, they started embracing that small ball because they saw it kind of simplified the game for them in a situation where they were struggling which was kind of getting guys in from second and third with less than two outs. And to the point they took a lot of pride in practice to working on it. So it's definitely personnel related. I think you got to have the right team. You obviously work on it in practice every day, which can be frustrating because if you're working on hit and run every day in practice, but you're only using it three or four times a season, the kids are like, why are we doing this every day in practice? Well, we're only using it three or four times. But those three or four times that you use it could win a state title for you. Just like slash punk, we beat Methuen. We we had to execute a slash punk. I mean, it's something we work every day in practice. I've maybe slash punked twice in the past two years. But when the situation calls for it, you've got to be able to execute it. So I think that 2014 team really bought into the small ball. I tend to use it a lot more in April and in the playoffs because you can't just let your guys strike out 20 times up there. you got to put some pressure on the defense. But that, I think that the calling card of that 2014 team was three suicide squeezes in the state championship, two more bumper hits. Like they just really took pride in, in executing in, in big situations. That's awesome. I mentioned that 2021 state championship game that I went to. That was, So that was a division one state championship game against Zavarian. I guess you moved to D2 last, what was it last year or is this year? Last season, yeah. Okay. Were you disappointed with that move or what did you think of it? I, th- I mean, the whole school moved. I, I think we might be going back to D1 another year or two. I'm not sure, but. We have 900 kids in the CTI program, and we have, we're have we an urban community as well. So I think with those two multipliers, the whole school moved down to Division Two. Right. So I think whether you're in Division One or Division Two, you're going to face really good teams. You're going to have great competition. I think the best team in the state last year was probably Division Three with Austin Prep. I think if you said Milton might have been the second best team in the state, I don't think many people would disagree with that. I think 
obviously Taunton, Franklin, all those teams at the top, Shrewsbury, were excellent. It's probably a little deeper, but I think once you get down to the final like five or six teams in each division, I think they're pretty they're, they're pretty even. Like everyone's got deep pitching, everyone's got deep lineups. So I think whether you're division one, two, or three, you're going to face some really good teams. That's a good segue to the Super 8 because, like you said last year, maybe it was Austin Prep that was the best team. Milton was right there. Franklin Taunton. Although that would have probably, those at least would have been four of the eight teams in the Super 8, and we could have figured out who was the best of those. But then I was looking back on one of your previous seasons, and I found this quote from you about the Super 8, a year that you didn't get in, but you won a state championship. You said, All year, our philosophy was control what we can control. If we're in the Super 8, we're in the Super 8. If we're not, we're going to go out and try to beat everybody the MIA wants us to beat. We kind of kept it a positive spin on the bus today. I said, hey, if we don't beat this team, the Super 8 is right. We don't belong. So it seemed like maybe you were on the wrong side of that Super 8 selection process one time and weren't really that. I mean, were you a fan of the Super 8? And and how do you feel about if if it was to return in a few years? I, th- I think the Super 8 is good for baseball. It brings in a lot of attention. I think if there was a Super 8 2021, I think we definitely would have been maybe a one. I think Zavera would have been a one seed. We probably would have been a two or three seed in that Super 8. If Anything that's going to bring big crowds and a lot of attention to the sport of baseball, I'm a big fan of. So, And I think the Super 8 becomes even easier now because you could really take your just your top eight teams in the state power ranging wise and throw them in, into a double elimination nine-inning tournament. The thing with Lemister Baseball, no matter what tournament we're in, we're going to get huge crowds. We're going to get a lot of attention. I think you saw the people that were at the Zavarian crowd. We played Central Catholic first game of the season, and the fence was three or four deep all the way around. It's just a great baseball community. We played Norwood in the state championship at, at Holy Cross. It was packed. Lemister just brings a lot of fans no matter where they go. But I do understand baseball and some other communities might need something like a Super 8 to kind of bring in the fans and, and bring more attention to high school baseball at Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm a fan of it. Obviously, I think 2014, we probably proved that maybe we did belong in the Super 8, but we just went where the MIA told us to go. So we, we stayed in the Division One, and I don't think anyone's regretting a state title in 2014. No, I wouldn't think so. I, and then the other thing that jumped out at me when I was kind of reflecting on that 2021 state championship with you and Zavarian, that was a great game. I thought, so talking to Zavarian players after the game, I remember they were like, every year we hear BC High or St. John's Prep and all these other teams and in the Catholic Conference, and this year we wanted it to be us that came out and won the state championship. I was just looking at the MIA rankings the other day, like none of those Catholic Conference teams are even in the top 10 this year of Division One. Why do you think that is? Did they lose a lot of people during the pandemic, or do you have a sense of, or is it just a weird year? Well, I think just like maybe traditionally, I've lost a lot of players to maybe St. John's. Yeah. Who's excellent, by the way. St. John's has a deep pitching staff. They got two Lemerson kids starting. They're great coaching. They're they're gonna be there in the ends. So I would definitely keep an eye on St. John's Shrewsbury. But yeah. I think they're getting prep school prep schools are taken from them. So I think it's they're kind of getting a little taste of what maybe the public schools are getting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Where like they're developing players as freshmen and sophomores and maybe they're losing them so they can go reclass at a prep school, their junior or senior. So I think that they're kind of dealing with maybe what we had to deal with, but St. John's Shrewsbury, excellent team. Central Catholic, who we played, excellent team. Those are, those are two teams that could definitely win a state title. doesn't matter what their power ranking is at this point. Yeah. Yeah, Central Catholic just lost yesterday to Chelmsford, but they were number three, I think, in the MIA rankings. Wanted to ask you about 
You had mentioned Legion being a really a strength in Lemonster, which that's not always the case anymore in different communities or a lot of times now it's travel ball. It sounds like you have a kid in the Nor'easter, so not like you would have a problem with it. But how has that kind of changed the complexion of baseball around Massachusetts? Yeah, so Central Mass region is really strong. It's like an outlier. Like I think Shrewsbury came in third in the Central Mass Legion tournament and then went to the World Series because they hosted the regionals. So they lost in the districts, but hosted the regionals, won the regionals, and went to the World Series. So it's like Lemonster, Shrewsbury, Milford, all really strong still in the Legion program. Legion's a good option for Lemonster kids because it's monetarily, we're, we're very blue collar. So it's very difficult for a lot of our kids to afford travel ball. Right. So to have a place where they can compete against some really good talent. I mean, we're talking like that Milford team was loaded with college players. Same with the Shrewsbury team, obviously. So, you know, when we can send guys that maybe can't afford travel ball to a Legion program where they're competing against good talent in the summer, that's just going to make our guys better. Plus, in Legion, a lot of times, too, you get a 16-year-old competing against a 19-year-old, which might not happen as much in travel ball. So you've got these younger kids that are really competing against freshmen in, in college. So it does create that where they're they going to have to struggle a little bit, where maybe if they're playing 16U Nor'easters or something, they, they might not face that same kind of challenge for themselves. On the other side, the year-long training that you get from travel ball just can't be replaced. These guys are so skilled nowadays, way more skilled than they were even 10 years ago. And there's definitely, you can see those guys that are just 12 months a year working with programs like the Nor'easters, fundamentally just solid, like skills off, off the chart, pitchers, the infielders, everything. So I think we're lucky in Lemonster to have plan A and plan B because I understand the travel and, and the money for some of these travel ball programs is not for everyone, but at the same time, go play for a statewide powerhouse Legion team. Like that's, that's a great option B. Yeah, absolutely. I have a buddy who's a travel ball program director and he just sent me over a couple of days ago. Just He wanted me to edit it, but it was a, a letter that he's sending to parents. And it's basically like, please, when you're coming to games, don't argue with the umpires. That's becoming a problem. We've got parents who are coming in the dugout and talk to their kids or he talked to pe- coaches about playing time in the middle of games. So he just was kind of laying out the groundwork. Have you known? And I was getting a sense that it's because it's travel ball, they're playing a lot of money. The parents feel like they maybe can inject their voice a little bit more than they would if it's a high school team or Legion, maybe where it's not as expensive. Have you noticed it affecting the high school game at all? It has not, but the high school game is free. Like we don't even charge a user fee at Lemonster because we're low income. But I mean but, like parents, parents arguing with umpires or anything like that. You haven't seen that? No, I think we're lucky enough we get pretty good umpires too. I think the big problem, like my son plays 14U. So the the issue, obviously, they're paying a lot of money. I think the second issue is 14U umpires are also learning. Like if, if you just took the umpiring exam and started umpiring, they would probably put you in a 13, 14U. Okay. So the umpires are learning. And some super weird stuff happens with 13 and 14-year-old kids. Like the game is not smooth. Like they're still growing. Some of these kids haven't hit puberty yet. And if they have, it's like, they just don't know the game, so weird stuff. So it's, it's also a tougher game to umpire at that level. So you have inexperienced umpires, inexperienced players, parents who paid a lot of money. So I think those things might contribute to maybe a little more arguing with umpires at that level, which doesn't belong, obviously, in the game. But being on the, on the front line as an assistant 14U coach, I can tell you those games are not easy to umpire at all. 
sometimes you've been playing for six hours, you wind the strike zone a little bit, this ground ball is short, you know, baseball tells you the ball's supposed to go second, all of a sudden it's going to third, now you get, the umpire's got to adjust their stances and stuff, so it, I think this, at that level, is just some weirder baseball, but I think the, mo- the money part definitely has something to do with it, and maybe even society a little bit, people think maybe they're owed something or whatever, but to me, in all honesty, I think bad calls are part of the game. So if they can get used to bad calls as 14-year-olds, then they'll they'll be more likely to be able to put it by them when they get to the high school level. If, if you're on a pitcher on the mound and you, you think you've had strike three, but you get a ball, there's a skill in being able to say, all right, deep breath. I didn't get the call that time. Now I'm going to work to get the call this time. So I take the opposite approach. I think maybe getting bad calls is a good thing because it teaches the kids not to make excuses. It teaches the kids to move on. And it's part of life. Like you got to catch bad breaks of life. So I think there's, there is value. Obviously, we want the umps to do the best job possible. But there is value in them making a call that you might not agree with. I think there's a lot of lessons kids can take from that. It's funny. I'm coaching my daughter's girls lacrosse team, 10U. And the first game I went to, I was like, this is 10U girls lacrosse. Do not argue any calls or anything like that. And the first like minute of the game, there's a goal that ended up, I don't know, it was a, a really weird goal. I, I don't know a ton about lacrosse anyway, so I was just like, was that a goal to the ref? And, and then I'm like, right away, all right, but we're not going to engage with the ref here. Whatever it is, it is. Let's just move on. But uh, yeah, it is funny when you get caught up in that. You, it's hard to, uh, even if you're being intentional about not arguing, sometimes you're like, hey, I need an explanation on what, what just happened there. But I wanted to ask you about some top players around the state, either pitchers or even hitters. And who are some of the top guys that you've seen with other programs? I know if you face Milton down the road, they have a couple D1 guys with Owen McHugh. And they have a young pitcher, Scott Longo, who's having a really good year. But who are some of the top players you've seen or expect to see this year? Yeah, so we see, obviously, we face Central Catholic. And we faced all three of their their top three pitchers because the game went 12 innings. Oh, wow. So with Josh Flores, Florence. And then Rondo, who's a lefty out of there. And then I think it's like Melendez or Melendez, Frankie. Yeah. Yeah. So like all three of that were like, they just like every pitcher that came out was mid eighties with great breaking balls. Wow. And then we followed that up with Caleb Allen, who is at Oakmont. I think, you know, the game before he pitched against us, he might've struck out like 18 guys against Tingborough or something crazy like that. Yeah. So we've definitely been in a position to see great pitching. We saw Shrewsbury's ace, Escobar, who's also excellent. But, you know, to me, that's just going to make us better for the playoffs. That's going to get us ready to see good pitching down the lines. It's kind of like when you're used to seeing kind of mid-80s twice a week, when you see that in a tournament game against Milton, hopefully later down the line, you're not shocked by it. You're kind of used to that, and you can see that. So we also face a great Methuen team, who's three. I think his last name might be Sullivan. I mean, he's going to Endicott. It was another powerhouse D3 program in the area. He had a couple bombs off us, and he's their ace. So he was excellent. I think Massachusetts baseball, you can kind of see that with Northeastern getting not in the top 25 and kind of UConn in the top 10. I think New England baseball-wise is kind of closing the gap a little bit. I think maybe the... A lot of indoor facilities nowadays, and these kids are kind of playing 70, 80 games a year with all this. I think the skill level of players in Massachusetts is definitely through the roof. And as a result, every team we're going up against has stud players on it. And 
really good pitching and really fundamental defense. So it's, we've seen a lot of great players so far this year. I think we're going to probably see Gray from Charleston on Monday. Oh yeah, Braden Gray. Yep. That's another Stonehill commit. So the schedule doesn't get any easier, but it's something we look forward to. It's not something we're dreading seeing him. I think it's a challenge. Win or lose, I think we're going to get better after facing a pitcher like that. What about coaching rivalries? Do you have any guys? I know sometimes even when I'm covering games, you can see these coaches react to the other coaches move and it's just a kind of X's and O's all game or game of cat and mouse and they're just really into it. Do you have any coaches that over the years you've established really good rivalries with? Yeah, I think our entire league is great. The, the league has probably recycled coaches a little bit recently, but you know, guys like Lee Diamantopoulos at Shrewsbury, him and I have coached against each other for about the last 20 years. And we also coach against each other in JV basketball because we're both JV basketball coaches and we're good friends. I think we know we're, when we're on the field, we're competing, but off the field, like we're always rooting for each other's teams. And we know when we go to Shrewsbury, it's going to be a battle. He knows when he comes to Leominster, it's everyone's going to get better. So I think definitely those league rivalries, Lee in particular is someone I consider a good friend and a competitor. And I think Lee makes the game of baseball better for kids in Massachusetts. And we just need a lot of guys like him. Absolutely. Well, coach, I really appreciate you taking the time in the middle of the season here to talk baseball. It, good luck to you as the rest of the way. And I can't wait to see. I'm looking forward to that clash in the playoffs if it happens with you and Milton. But good luck in the rest of the regular season here to get yourself set up for the play postseason. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Now we're going to do the three up, three down segment with our producer, David Yaz. Three up, three down. Yes, Dan, per usual, the crack research staff here at the Base Path Podcast has come up with three questions for you. And since Matt is not here today, I will fill in and I'll give my answer to these questions if anyone at home cares. Question number one, Dan. Who is the greatest fictional baseball player from film or television? So I am going to go with the movie Major League, which I've probably seen at least a dozen times, Major League One and Major League Two. And I was trying to brainstorm. Dorn is a great (laughs) is a great character in there. I I think you have to go with Rick the Wild Thing Vaughn. He's the main character, the lead. It's Charlie Sheen. I love Charlie Sheen in comedies. Mm. And it's a it's a really good, good movie. He's a, he's the prototypical wild closer. Uh, and I was also one of my favorite teams of all time. Probably, no, not, not my favorite team, but one of my favorite Philadelphia Phillies teams is the 93 team with Mitch Williams mm. as the closer. And he has a lot of similarities in the way he approaches the ninth inning as Rick the Wild Thing Vaughn. So I'm going Major League Rick the Wild Thing Vaughn. Well, they called Mitch Williams Wild Thing. They did. I, I, yeah. think, I think inspired by the movie. He was just what you said. He was the type that could... He would walk the bases loaded and then strike out the side. I remember during that World Series where they faced the Blue Jays and ultimately lost, there were famously shots of Kurt Schilling who had started a game with his head in his hands in the dugout when Mitch Williams was blowing it. (laughs) It, it, The question looms as to whether Mitch Williams was actually really a good closer or just but fun to watch yeah sure. fun. and and kurt schilling was never known to be the greatest teammate in that type of situation right exactly right well my favorite fictional baseball player i don't know if he's the greatest but it's probably kelly leak from the bad news bears because i'm a sucker for that story of course poor kelly seemingly without a friend a burnout kid just riding his dirt bike around the 
the baseball fields um, being chased by parents and angry coaches. And Coach Buttermaker, in a genius move, dusts, dusts him off, plugs him into the cleanup spot. And were it not for a great relay, he would have hit the game-tying grand slam. In the That's bottom. right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, and we, we need to give apologies to uh, Roy Hobbs, that this, our boss, Eric Siemens, was in earlier. That was his answer to this question. Of course, the Robert Redford character, magical, of course, fairy tale. And then you and I also mentioned the, the kid from Rookie of the Year, which I didn't really love that movie. That movie. Did you enjoy that movie? I think I did. Yeah, yeah I was. I was probably I, the right I, age. For yeah, it. <laughs> I was gonna say I was a kid when I watched it, and I was. That was a dream for me to come out of the stands and all of a sudden get on the mound in a major league game. Yeah, well, we've got quite a team. We'll have to fill out the Dorn can play third base. Yeah, Leak in the outfield, and we got the wild thing on the mound. And I guess we. Well, you know what? I think we'd have to put Crash Davis behind home plate, right, right. from both from Bull Durham. Have Willie Mays Hayes in center field. Yeah, I like that. He's got the speed. <laughs> yep. Came into his own as the season went along. That's All right. right. We know that these people don't actually exist, everybody. We want you to know that. Question number two, Dan. What is or was your favorite baseball card that you owned? The funny thing, I just reconnected with my baseball card set because my parents downsized from their house mm-hmm. and they cleaned out the basement and they just gave me boxes of baseball cards. And it's funny going through them because my when I collected baseball cards, it's a window of time from about 1986 to about 1993. Mm. It's, oh, yeah, it's a short window. Yeah. Mine, mine's, mine diff- I'm older than you, so I had a different time frame. But you're really only into it from ages maybe 8 to 12 or somewhere in there, right? Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, what, that's that age bracket for me. So it was uh, during that time, Ken Griffey Jr. was mm. the biggest rookie card that you could get. I think it was 88 or 89, but I had I had his upper deck rookie card, which upper deck also just started around that time period. So at the time, that was the most valuable card I had. I think I went back and looked at it. I, I saw that card in my the set that my parents got. It's still under soft plastic, hard plastic. So it's it's probably still in very good condition, maybe even mint condition. But it, it hasn't really appreciated at all in value because everybody has hung on to their cards from that era. I think it's probably more your era where if you held on to your cards, now they're worth big money. Yeah, well, the, the, the baseball card industry has gone through so many ups and downs. When I was a kid, it was flourishing. And so if you had a rookie card, like I don't call it like a George Brett or a Mike Schmidt rookie card, they were super valuable. And people were gobbling them up thinking that they would be a good investment. And then it turns out that they weren't the greatest investment. and my cherished card was Ricky Henderson, kind of the same version of a slightly earlier era. Ricky Henderson rookie card. I had four of them and I still have them, although one has mysteriously disappeared. So mom, dad, go looking for that one. But <laughs> and I remember gobbling those up and my dad kind of laughing at me saying, "Well, oh, I hope he turns out to be a great player. And man, I was right. Yeah. OK, so he is. But. Now, depending upon where you look, it's the card is worth anywhere from like $30 to like $10,000. But I'm quite sure mine isn't because what you don't realize is they have to be in mint condition. Right. And as when I'm 10 years old, how am I supposed to be keeping cards in mint condition? I don't know how to do that. Yeah, you're, tra- <laughs> you're trading them and playing with them. It's That's funny. The Ricky Henderson was one of the best personalities in baseball for like stood. Oh, yeah. 
After he broke that stolen base record, didn't he stand on the base and say, I am the greatest of all time or something like yeah, that? He's, yeah. He was so unusual. But And then later that day, Nolan Ryan threw one of his many no-hitters and kind of upstaged Henderson. Yeah. But yeah, he was, he was, it was all about Ricky, Planet Ricky, one of the great uh, third-person talkers ever. He talked, he referred to himself as a third-person, but. He he actually played for the Red Sox for a season, didn't he? He did, yeah. yeah. He wasn't that bad. He he only hit like two forty, I think, but he got on base a lot, which is what which is what he did. Yeah, he always walked a lot. Yeah. So I'll give you a quick recommendation on the subject of baseball cards. There's a documentary which came out on Netflix. I, I hope for the sake of everyone, it's still on Netflix. It's called Jack of All Trades, and it just follows a baseball card collector doing what you did, kind of going back to his parents' house and unearthing a huge baseball card collection. You haven't seen this yet? No. Okay. You should check it out. And But I bring it up in part because it he had the Ricky, the Ken Griffey Jr. card. And the documentary sort of nails down the true story on that. And that is that I believe it was Topps. They at later, years later, admitted that they had flooded the market with these Ken Griffey rookie cards because they wanted people to go out and buy sets of tops of baseball cards and they wanted to hunt down the hunt down these good for business for tops right but in doing so they rendered the the value of that card useless because the more there are obviously the less it's going to be worth maybe your upper deck card would survive in better fashion. I don't know. Well, it's funny because in that era, Tops was like going into that era, like in the 70s, Tops was the most valuable brand you could have. And then I think you're right. And you used to get packs. So you get, I don't know, five to 10 cards or maybe 20 cards in a pack. So if you're flooding the market with these, you're more likely to get the Ken Griffey Jr. in a pack of cards and you're probably more likely to buy tops. But yeah, you're right. Now now that you're looking back at them, everybody's got a tops Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. Yeah, I take it back. It, it, I'm just looking on the on the interwebs here. It was the the upper deck uh, is the card that oh they flooded wanted. the market with oh I'm, I'm pretty sure so I'm sorry for the bad news Dan oh that's too bad <laughs> it's funny all my all the valuable rookie cards that I have in these hard plastics and was keeping at the time are all steroid guys now it's it's like Fonz <laughs> McGuire Manny Ramirez like all these guys that I held on to but that's kind of a a, a certain time in baseball so it's well it's my we, Hall of Fame that's right and as we as we talked about it in a recent episode. You and I agree that those guys should be in Cooperstown. I really think they will eventually. I really think down the road people will realize that they really were the base, the best at the game at the time, and would have been if steroids didn't exist. They would; their numbers might not have been as great, but it was part of the era. So, yeah, yeah. Every year you see a few of those writers do a column right around the time of voting, and they'll be like, "You know what? I'm changing my mind. I'm yeah. there. I, I have no idea who did it and who didn't. They're all going in this year." Yeah. And as you pointed out in, in a past episode, it's, you, you could call it the Scott Rowland effect. Once you realize Scott Rowland is in the Hall of Fame and those others aren't, it's like, yeah, come on. Yeah, you're like <laughs> four-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glove winner. Like, this guy's going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Although right. Rowland probably has better a bio than that. but Right. Well, and no offense to Scott Rowland, who I'm sure is a perfectly nice guy. <laughs> he, he wanted out of Philadelphia, so I'm not a fan. Oh, okay. So he's <laughs> off the list. Yep. All right, question number three, the final question for three up, three down. Dan, have you ever caught a foul ball at a baseball game? And if not, what was your closest call? Okay, so the I will set the scene here that I have caught foul balls at baseball games that I've covered, mm-hmm. like high school games and stuff like that, just because sometimes you're the only fan in the section. 
So I'm going to treat this like, have I ever caught a foul ball at an MLB baseball game? I think that's right. I have not, but a really funny story. So one of the first games that I ever went to was a veteran stadium in Philadelphia. I was sitting in the upper level, which was, there's really nothing at Fenway that's that high. I guess if you were behind the plate, it's kind of similar to the second level. But anyway, I was right down the first baseline, probably about even with first base in the upper section. And it was a right-handed batter at the plate, Juan Samuel. Mm. And he he gets player. a pitch. Yeah. yeah, he was a good player. He fouls it off opposite field. It's coming down the first baseline right towards us. And it was early days when I was going to games. I was probably five or six years old. So I'm talking to my dad, probably asking him situational questions or something. He's explaining it to me. And then I'm looking up in the air, eyes wide open, like, oh, my God, this foul ball looks like it's coming right for us. Mm. So my dad's not, he didn't see the pitch, didn't see the foul ball. And he's all of a sudden looking up, trying to find the ball in the air, doesn't see it. So he ends up ducking, like putting his hand over his head and ducking. Mm. It almost hits him, goes right over his shoulder, and it lands in a cup of beer in the <laughs> in the cup, like at a seat, the row right behind us. Right. So it, it's a funny story that you can still bring up around my dad. He gets embarrassed that he ducked out <laughs> of a foul ball because he's he's the type of dad that's like, oh, I, I'm going to catch that with one hand every day, all the all the time. So he's still embarrassed about that story today. My. My dad had an occasion to be at Fenway Park and a ball. Um, he was in the front row. I think this is the way the story went. It, it was a foul ball, a, a bounder that skipped into the stands. And um, apparently a kid like to his behind him, a kid behind him had their hands on the ball and fumbled it. And it fell in front of my dad. My dad figures, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to give it to this kid. It's the right thing to do. So he takes the ball. He gives it to the kid. What he didn't realize was there was a different kid who was in his row that was also reaching for it. And so because of the angle that most had, it appeared that my dad had taken it away from a kid and given it to somebody else. Oh, no. Yeah. And so he was he was booed. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but my so I, I have had the thrill of catching a couple foul balls. The I, I caught you got to get them on the ricochet on on the the second or third like lunge of the fans because the first those those hand goes up it hits somebody's hand or a combination of hands and then it bounces right. sort of so I had one where it was I had good seats at Fenway it went up it hit off somewhere near the EMC the four hundred six club right at whatever we're calling it these days EMC club it hit and came back to the stands a bunch of people grasped for it and then it popped in the air and it came right to me it was an easy catch. I had beer in my left hand and I caught it barehanded with obviously barehanded with my right hand. So I was so excited. And but the the near miss that I had is more memorable. I was at a Pawtucket Red Sox game and it's it's easier to catch a, a foul ball at a minor league game, you typically, than a MLB game. And I brought my glove. I must have been like 15, 16 years old or something like that. I'm like, I'm gonna catch a ball today. And so somebody hits a line drive. And it's coming right at me. And it was a can of corn. It was an easy play. But I panicked. I reached up. It required me to reach. And I reached up and I felt the ball hit my glove, brought my glove down, opened my glove, looked in. There was nothing in there. It had gone off the tip of my glove. And I hear the people behind me celebrating that they got the ball. And I can only, at that moment, it dawned on me in in a horrible moment that I had forgotten to stand up. I didn't stand up. I was, oh, I was If I just stood up, I would have caught it chest high. Oh, it was a heartbreaker. But I was going to ask you how you feel about bringing a glove to a game. Is there is there an age where it's no longer appropriate or you're okay all the way up through adulthood bringing, bringing a glove to a game? Yeah, 
Definitely not as an adult. Come on. <laughs> but but I mean, after the Jeffrey Mayer incident in in New York, I think that maybe they should be banned. But I don't know. Even even as I was a teenager with a glove, I probably look stupid. Bad move. Right. I don't know what the age cutoff is. Yeah. I mean, if you get the foul ball, then you That's know, right. it's fine. What about wearing a uniform shirt? Because some people will wear that for the, their entire life. Yeah. And then some people figure it's not the greatest look for a grown up. Will you wear a, a, like an authentic baseball shirt to a baseball game? Oh, man. So I used to to football games probably until about my mid-20s. And mm-hmm. then I think I was like, you know what? These guys are younger than me. It's, it's right. probably time to take the jersey off. That's right. That's that's when it starts to feel silly. Yeah. All right, Dan, you have once again successfully negotiated three up, three down. Congratulations. We have a sport bar, ice cream bar for you to enjoy after the game. So enjoy. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Rich Barnaby for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.